Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, on this Feast of the Palms, we remember the triumphal entry of our Lord in the kicking off of Holy Week. As we look forward to the cross and the tomb, keep our minds and hearts focused on the atoning sacrifice that is represented in Easter and the glory of the resurrection that is to come. And now may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. We are in John chapter 11. We traditionally take a break around Easter and around Christmas, as we do around Christmas, to, um, to focus on things that are pertinent to the season. And I can think of nothing more pertinent to Palm Sunday than the story of the resurrection of Lazarus, or the, rather the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Let's keep our terminology straight. Uh, next week, of course, is Easter Sunday, and we won't meet, but the Sunday after Easter, um, Steve will lead a post-resurrection story, and then uh, two Sundays after Easter, we will be back in the, um, in the epistle to the Romans. So... I would like to read from John chapter 11, beginning at the first verse, and you follow along. I had prepared to read from another version, but the ESV is close enough to what I was going to read, so I'll just read from the ESV. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha, it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to waken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died and for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. 
So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again on the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. Then when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. The word of the Lord. Be to God. Some theologians refer to the Gospel of John, or at least the first half of the Gospel of John, as the book of signs. Because John has told the story of Jesus' three-year ministry by arranging all of the action around seven major miracles. Now, three of these miracles, first the turning of the water into wine, and then the uh, turning of five loaves and two fishes into enough bounty to feed a multitude, and then calming the waters of the Sea of Galilee during a storm, these are three signs which show Jesus' 
command over the physical elements of the world. Three of those uh, signs are teaching are, are healing miracles. First, the man who was lame by the pool of Bethesda, and then the man who had been blind from birth, and then a nobleman's son who was sick unto death, and the nobleman rode out into the wilderness to meet Jesus to beg for his son's life, and later learned that the very moment that he met Jesus was the moment that his son was healed. Now those are six signs, all showing that Jesus had this command of the physical elements and this ability to bring miraculous healing where no medical science had ever been able to heal. But the seventh sign, the last of these signs, the raising of Lazarus from the dead, is quite unlike any of the other six because Lazarus was actually dead. You see, in the first century, the people tended to think that the spirit would hang around a dead body for a few days and could perhaps go back into the dead body and the, the person could, could rise from what had been thought of as death. It may be the way the first century people thought and explained a coma. A person coming out of a coma was perhaps thought to be dead. But whatever it was that they had it to offer, that was the, that was the belief. But in a day before they had embalming fluid, the most that they could do for a dead body was to, uh, was to uh, anoint it with ointment and then wrap it in linen and put it inside of a tomb, which tended to be, as this one was, a cave or a, 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 uh, a passageway in hewn rock. And, of course, within a few days, that body would, would begin to decompose. It would go to corruption. And it was clear, John makes it plain. He goes at great lengths to explain, because Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days, that corruption had begun. There was no doubt that the spirit was gone. There was no more spirit because the body had begun to decompose. So, when Jesus performs this final miracle, this seventh sign, he does something that none of the other signs could even get close to. It was, as Heidi Kenner put it in a sermon a few years ago, it was a proof positive that this man is God. And the fact that it was the seventh sign denoted that his his teaching ministry was done. It was complete. Um, completion had been achieved, and now it was time for the cross. And the second half of John's gospel was all uh, dedicated to, uh, to, to the cross. In fact, in the next chapter, here we have Palm Sunday, it, just, just very soon after that, Jesus has the triumphal entry, and John writes that some of the reason that the people had come out to see Jesus was that they had heard that Lazarus had been raised from the dead, and they wanted to see Lazarus as much as they wanted to see Jesus. That's why in the Orthodox Eastern Church, they celebrate the Saturday before Palm Sunday as Lazarus Day, because they're focused on the Gospel of John. There are some very revealing exchanges in this story between Jesus and his disciples and Jesus and the others in the story. Uh, note that when News gets to him that Lazarus is ill. John writes, now Jesus really loved Lazarus and loved Lazarus' two sisters, Martha and Mary. And so he stayed two more days out in the wilderness, which is a strange reaction. The apostles, the disciples must have been thinking, 
I thought he really loved this guy, so why is he not going back to Judea? Which is fine with the disciples, because it's clear they don't want to go at all. You see, at the end of the last chapter, they had had to hightail it out of Judea, and now they are on the, in the land on the other side of the Jordan where John the Baptist had been preaching uh, back, in, back in his heyday. And this is, the other side of the Jordan is like the backside of nowhere. They are really out in the wilderness. And, and the apostles don't want to go back. It's just too, a little bit too hot back in Jerusalem right now. And so they think it's really good news that Lazarus is asleep because after all, you know, we, we don't have to go. He's going to get better. No, no, he's dead. So that's why Thomas declares, we'll go with him and we'll die with him. Because that's probably what the disciples expected. They expected a mob waiting to stone them all. Now notice when they get there that both Martha and then Mary have the same greeting for Jesus. And I use the term with some trepidation because it's not so much a greeting as sort of a, a passive aggressive hello. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. There's just a little bit of hostility in those words. In fact, Martha adds to that a challenge. I know that even now God will do anything you ask God to do, which is sort of like saying, okay, you really screwed up on this one, but you can make it up to me by, you know, by doing what I want now. Well, it's been said in funerals where John 11 is the text that it's really important how Jesus responded to Martha. If he was of a Joel Osteen sort of frame of mind, he might have said, now Martha, you mustn't talk like this. Martha, you, you, you really got to focus on the positive. No, Jesus didn't try to talk Martha out of her grief. He met Martha's grief right where it was. He said, your brother will rise again. Well, of course, Martha didn't understand him. She, she responded, yes, I know, on the day of the resurrection, which is kind of what I understand to be kind of contemporary first century Jewish thought about the end times, the the, the the days, the day of the Lord, you know, all of the dead will be raised. That was kind of mainstream Jewish thought, the day of the resurrection. And Jesus makes that unambiguous claim for himself. I am the resurrection and the life. And whosoever believeth in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And then he says to her, do you believe this? Now that's a really interesting question because it's a question that comes to every one of us. And there's no use answering it in sort of a, a, a wishy-washy way. Oh, Lord Jesus, I believe that you are a great teacher. I believe that you were the bridge between God and man. No, no. Wrong. Or to take another wishy-washy response. Well, Jesus, according to my faith tradition, you are the following. Jesus isn't interested in wishy-washy responses. He says to each one of us, do you believe this? Just like he said to Peter, who do you say that I am? He says, Dorothy, do you believe this? Steve Tillman, do you believe this? Every one of us, do you believe this? 
Well, Martha gives the right answer. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the one foretold in the prophecies who is to come into the world. Now, there's a difficulty with some language here. Um, in the in the version that I read, when 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 Mary is lying at Jesus's feet, it says that Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, and was deeply moved in his spirit, and greatly troubled. And then again, further on, after he wept, he uh, was at the tomb, and he was um, he was deeply moved again, according to verse 38. Well, in the King James version, it's even more explicitly strange. He groaned in the spirit and was groaning in himself. And I've read that that's a fairly accurate literal translation of the Koine Greek. He was groaning in his spirit. Now, a lot of people would say that this was just Jesus kind of caught up in the emotion of the moment, the grief that's all around him. And I used to think that that might have actually been the moment that Jesus resolved that he would raise Lazarus from the dead. But that can't be right because even back in the wilderness, what Jesus said to his disciples made clear that he had intended all along to raise Lazarus from the dead. So why this strange language about groaning in the spirit? Well, I think that maybe in the context, if we, if we read what's going on around him, we get a clue. Here's Mary. You know, the one who was going to wipe his feet with her hair, the, the, perhaps the middle child who was somewhat the free spirit, um, philosophical and spiritual one, Mary, the one who had chosen the better part in the other story about Mary and Martha at home. Here's Mary lying at his feet, wailing and moaning like a small child, you know, prostrate and looking around him and all this crowd weeping and wailing and carrying on and you almost get the impression that these are professional mourners. Or maybe if not professional, the kind of people who, the kind of idiots who always show up at a, at a tragedy. Like, uh, you know, some, some celebrity is in the hospital and the crowd has to gather outside the hospital hoping that they'll get interviewed by the TV news so that they can be on television proclaiming their undying devotion to the celebrity who's inside. Or all those weeping and wailing masses at the gate at Buckingham Palace after Princess Diana died, who turned the entire British nation into a wailing hot mess. I, I, I never did get over that. That just really was deeply disturbing. But that's what kind of you get the impression that these people are. That they've come out from Jerusalem, maybe the family is well known, and they want to be seen wailing for Lazarus. And Jesus is looking around and he's saying, some of these people I've been with for three years. Now, I don't understand the Greek nearly as well as people who studied the Greek, but two people who know pretty well what this means have convinced me that Jesus is put out. This groaning in the spirit, Jesus is, is, is frustrated. He's the, not, not even Mary gets it. Here she is wailing like a like a mad woman, they're the ones who, who call Jesus to come. Don't you get? Don't you understand who I am? So in the sense of groaning in his spirit, I think Jesus is just kind of, he, he has a momentary all-too-human reaction to their carrying on in such a way that implies that they have no clue 
of what he's capable of doing. The story, I think, as much as illustrating the seventh sign, the completion, the power over life and death, looking toward the cross, I think John also intended this story to illustrate something of the nature of Jesus. It illustrates that he was at the same time fully human and fully divine. Mary and Martha and Lazarus, or rather I would prefer to say Martha and Mary and Lazarus because I always picture Martha as the responsible older sister and Lazarus as the adored younger brother. And again, Mary is that sort of free spirit middle child. We don't know that, but that's just seems to me the family dynamic. Martha and Mary and Lazarus were his friends. We can imagine that every time he came to Bethany, he enjoyed their company. They were perhaps supporters of his ministry. He loved them, but the word love used in the Greek is philios. He had this fraternal affection for them, like they were his real brother and sisters. And I have no doubt that when Jesus wept, he was weeping real tears of real grief for a lost friend. And he was weeping real tears of emotional response for the grief of the sisters who were like his sisters. But of course, Jesus is also the Word made flesh. He is God come down. And those tears were also agape tears. They were tears not just for Lazarus the friend, but Lazarus the the human brother. He had spiritual love for Lazarus and his sisters. He has spiritual love for all of us. Those were tears for the human condition. Those were tears of grief for the squalor and the agony and the veil of tears that is our sinful life on this on this earth. So we remember how in other gospels Jesus was often moved to compassion for the lost sheep of Israel. And I think that those tears were truly tears for the lost sheep of Israel, looking around him at these people who had no conception that the word made flesh was right there among them. He had real tears for their misery and the misery of the human condition. So raising Lazarus from the grave was not just a symbol, a sign of the Godship of Jesus. It was a symbol and a sign that because the Word made flesh is with us, that we no longer need to weep and wail and mourn like this. You know, Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. But that's the way these people around Jesus were grieving, and that's the way we grieve in a world without Jesus. I told some of you that last year I studied the book of Ecclesiastes uh, for Lent, and it's an appropriate thing to read during Lent because it's the perfect picture of the human condition and the perfect picture of the best that we can aspire to in a creation without a Redeemer. A couple of years ago, a friend of mine died, a Jewish lawyer. Um, Some of you knew him. And uh, I went to his funeral. His son and my son were very close during 
during uh, their school days. And my daughter's clinic actually had treated him, so she went to the funeral with me. And it was at Temple Emmanuel, the Reformed Temple, and it was presided over by Rabbi Jonathan Miller, who is the best known and probably the most ecumenical of all of the Jewish leaders here in Birmingham. And if he's ever, if he ever listens to this on tape, I hope that he'll, he'll, he'll not hold me liable for this. But I expected Rabbi Miller, at least in that service, to get a little bit of a glimpse of maybe New Testament hope from such a an ecumenical rabbi in such an ecumenical reform congregation, but but no. We had not one but two readings from Ecclesiastes and and Rabbi Miller said, Eddie is gone. He talked about what a great guy Eddie was and a man's man and, and, and how many friends he had and what great memories we have of him and how at the end Eddie, who was always a life affirming guy, had clung to life. But ultimately, the end came, and Eddie is no longer with us. He's a, he, he is a memory. Well, I, you know, I came away from that thinking, if that's the best we can do, I have great respect for, for, um, for, for Jews. And, of course, I think of Jews as our, our, our fellow believers in, in, a, in a real way. But I thought, without Christ, if that's... If that's all that there is, then I, I wasn't very comforted. And, and my daughter and I talked about that, and, and we agreed that, that in an in a Ecclesiastes world, that we, we might, in fact, mourn as those who have no hope. But we, on this side of the empty tomb, do not mourn as those who have no hope. We mourn as those who have the hope and the assurance of the resurrection. And so that's why I call this little lesson Easter in embryo, because that really is what the raising of Lazarus was. It was a glimpse of the coming resurrection of the body that would be for all time or all eternity, not just for the rest of a temporal life. And if that's all that this story was, these layers, then that would be, I think, plenty enough. But this is Holy Scripture, so there's always something else. And this, of course, is the Gospel of John. And so emphatically, there's always something else. So I'd like to suggest to you one more thing else that this story is. That is that when Jesus raised Lazarus, as a seventh sign. It was something more transcendental. Imagine, for example, if Lazarus had a different name, if his name was Adam, which the Old Testament scholars tell us means man, or in our modern vernacular means human beings, humanity. And imagine that instead of Bethany of Judea, um, where Lazarus, man, Adam was located is creation or in our modern vernacular our world well humanity in our world is locked in the grave in a cold dark tomb and bound hand and foot by sin and death and blind 
with the wrappings around our eyes. We can't see, we can't move, we can't feel the warmth of the sunlight, we can't see any light. But the Word made flesh came into our world, came to our Bethany, and called us out of the tomb. We heard his voice and we received new life. We came out of the gloom, the darkness and the cold of the tomb into the light. And we had the grave clothes cut away and our sight restored and our life restored. Death has no more sting. And the grave has no victory. It's Easter. Praise God. Amen. Praise God.